0: Good afternoon. Welcome to Conversations and Meditations. I'm your host, Virgil Verricks. Today is March 2nd, 2019. Happy March. Happy March. Um, okay, so first thing I want to get into is um, just mentioning that the website's going to be uh, some construction going in, uh, on, on the website. It's going to be some maintenance and some other things. going to be adding some new stuff on there, trying to see what I could do to uh, switch it up and maybe add some more artwork and some more uh, stuff that could be integrated within the actual show and the actual articles and stuff on there. And um, don't for, don't think I forgot about the talk on the Sam Harris, Eric Weinstein um, speech that was here at the uh, end of January. Um, we're going to have uh previous guest, August, come on and talk about that. He was there, couldn't make it. There was a, a blizzard and there was no way I can get there. So... First thing today. Um, aside from that, though, we'll get that show to you coming soon. Um, but today, I kind of want to talk uh, again about economics, and um, you know, last time I talked about economics, I talked about economics and its uh, connection to prosperity and poverty in the world and in America. But today, I kind of want to talk about you know economic progress and the role of government within that uh, you know paradigm. So. You know, economists use the standard of you know, economic efficiency to assess, you know, the operations of an economy. You know, when resources are used efficiently, only actions that yield more benefits than costs are undertaken. Um, you know, so during the past half century, um, application of economic tools and political process have become an integral part of economics. Uh, the term public choice is used to describe this analysis um the tools of economics will be you know used to analyze the operations of both markets and the political process and compare uh, compare performance with the idealized concept of economic efficiency and you know Jay will will you know cover the um actually cover all that but consider the shortcomings of both of those things okay next thing i'd like to mention is you know talking about the government of the economy you know government expenditures are now More than a third of our economy, and this highlights why it's so important to understand how the political process affects resource allocation. So there was a new study that came out not too long ago by the Congressional Budget Office saying that um, when it comes to our debt, I think we're twenty-two trillion uh, debt, and then uh, unfunded liabilities somewhere around one hundred and twenty trillion. So you add all that up, and uh, (laughs) we have big problems. And on that, in a similar, you know, CBO um, report, they talked about, you know. Medicare, Medicaid and uh, Social Security and how those programs by the 2020s and 2030s are going to be very difficult to be – continue to be funded. So this is kind of <laughs> really scary stuff and really important stuff and things that we should be talking about more and um, people in the national um, conversation aren't really getting to these topics, talking about like, OK, well, they – the congressional budget Congressional Budget Office is saying this. What does that mean for people on those you know types of programs and you know who benefit from those type of things? What means what does that mean for them at that time or people that might need that in the future? You know, so so government you know promotes economic progress by protecting the rights of individuals and supplying a few goods that are difficult to provide through markets. So um, you know Thomas Jefferson had a, you know pretty interesting quote saying a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men. From injuring one another, which shall leave them uh, otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvements, and shall not be take shall not taken uh, shall not take from the uh, mouth of labor the bread it has earned, the sum of its good government. This is the sum of a good government. Sorry, I was kind of choppy. <laughs> so, um, when it comes to the government, we're talking about you know protective and um, productive functions of the government. So, governments serve a, produ- uh, a protective function when it you know creates and upholds. And uh, maintains a legal framework and a, a legal system that is fair and that doesn 't pick favorites um also when it protects and enforces the rights of individuals to their person and property so government provides a productive function when it supplies goods that are difficult to supply efficiently through markets so things like this include national defense flood control projects provide you know national or regional flood control projects um in some cases water, you know police departments, you know fire departments, you know, et cetera you know the deal um, another thing that we gotta you know focus on and pay attention is the idea that when a monopoly is present and the barriers to entry uh, are high and the market will fail to achieve ideal efficiency. So people talk about monopolies a lot and like to get involved in the discussion of whether X company is a monopoly or this is a monopoly. So technically a monopoly is a market characterized by you know, one, a single seller of a well-defined product for which there is no substitute and two, a high barriers to entry in the market. So uh, there are two major sources of monopolies, uh, economies of scale and grants of privilege. Economies of scale is a tendency for a market to be dominated by a single seller because unit costs decline as firm size increases. So a historical example could be uh, the De Beers uh, diamond company, in uh, I think in Africa over there. That's like probably one of the only you know quote unquote natural monopolies I can kind of think of off the top of my head. Grant um, and privilege, you know, government permission required to you know compete in the market. That's another thing. Um, so monopoly and economic efficiency, price and output under a monopoly. You know, monopolists have an incentive to restrict output and raise prices. So restricting output and raising the prices will often increase the revenue of the monopolist. So inefficiency results because the monopolist fails to produce some unit of the good or service that customers value more than their costs – So you know a lot of misconceptions about you know free markets and capitalism in general is that you know monopolies are are what what is desired at the end of the day. Well, if you actually read you know the data and you know some of the theories and you know some of the ideas of some of these economists, monopolies are you know inefficient and result in a failure to provide customers value, you know, for more than their costs, which is at the end of the day what they what they want. So um you know talk about you know monopoly and its interaction with government you know there's antitrust action you know uh to promote competition governments may prohibit actions such as collusion you know the merger of a dominant firms in an industry interlocking ownership of firms uh, and the US antitrust laws have performed this function numerous times um the record of government in this area has kind of been mixed, though. Um, sometimes government actions, you know, licensing requirements, discriminatory taxes, have restricted entry into markets, protected existing producers from rivals, limiting price and competition. So you could kind of see how, uh, in many cases, this creates a barrier to entry for a newer firm to come and compete with an already est- well-established firm that has the money to, you know, deal with the licensing requirements and the discriminatory discriminatory taxes and all the other things that come along with it. So another thing we've got to mention is the idea of public goods and externalities result in incentives that may encourage self-interested individuals to undertake activities that are inconsistent with ideal economic efficiency, and that type of model. So the nature of some goods make them difficult to provide through markets. Right? Market allocation may result in inefficiency in the case of public goods and externalities. Um, so when I mention public goods, what do I mean by that? Right? Um, public goods have the following of the two characteristics: you know, jointness in consumption, and the provision of the good to one party simultaneously makes it available to others, um, and non-exclusionability. Um, exclusivity, excuse me, it is difficult or virtually impossible to exclude non-paying customers of this good. Um, you know, it's the goods characteristic, not the sector in which it is produced, that distinguishes. It. It is a public good. You know, example could be national defense, radio broadcast signals, like I said, flood control, police. Um, when we talk about public goods. You know, we have to also talk about you know market failures. Um, you know, because potential suppliers are unable to establish a one-to-one link between payments for uh, and receipts of the goods, it will be difficult to provide public goods through markets. If a public good is made available to one, it is simultaneously made available to the other. Because those who do not pay cannot be excluded. No one has, you know, much of an incentive to pay for such goods. Each has an incentive to become a free rider in a sense. So when a lot of people become free riders, too little of the good is produced. So this could happen like if people wanted to, you know, quote unquote, uh, this state in time, try to privatize some type of the national defense or something stupid like that. So, yeah, Um, we talk about. I mentioned externalities, you know, external costs and, you know, their benefits, uh, essentially. You know, so externalities exist when the market fails to fully register costs and benefits and, you know, fully understand that. We talk about, you know, external costs. You know, we talk, you know, they're uh, present, you know, they're present when, you know, the actions of the individual or group harm the property of others without their consent. Um, The problem arises because property rights are imperfectly defined and or enforced. Um, external benefits present when, uh, when the actions of an individual or group generate, uh, benefits for non-participating parties. So that's what you have to understand about externalities. There's external costs and there's external benefits. And the external costs are present when the actions of an individual or group harm the property of others without their consent. And like I said, most of this, you know, tends to, the, the waters, you know, get kind of muddy because you know, property rights are not defined, you know, or enforced strictly enough. So we talk about, you know, continue to talk about market failures in general, you know, external costs. That's something really important to kind of take in and understand because some of the costs of production are not fully registered when external costs are present. You know, the supply curve understands the true cost of production. You know, units may be produced that are valued less than their true cost. From the viewpoint of efficiency, market price is too low and too many units are produced. So when we talk about external benefits, you know, external benefits are present when they're there. You know, the demand curve, you know, understands the total value of the output. Units that are more highly valued than their cost may not be produced at all. And from the viewpoint of efficiency, too few units may be produced altogether. So, and this is, you know, implications of market failure. You know, market failure, when a monopoly, public good, or externalities are present, markets may fail to achieve, ideal economic efficiency. You know, economists use the term "market failure" to describe the situation when an existing structure of incentives create, you know, a conflicting, you know, personal self, uh, you know, conflict. I mean, excuse me, create a conflict between personal self interest and getting the most out of a resource. You know, market failure creates the potential for government action to improve economic efficiency, but the political process is merely an alternative form of economic organization. You know, we need to understand. And know more uh, about how that you know that form of organization works, so it can be compared realistically with markets in general. So, some of the things we need to think about, you know, uh, you know, just covering, you know, going over that is, you know, the ideas of monopoly, public goods, uh, and why are they difficult? You know, why is it difficult for markets to allocate them efficiently? These things are really important to kind of take in and kind of. Uh, Understands, you know, particularly when you're thinking about how a government and market, you know, and econ- economics, you know, intersect. So, you know, allocation through political, you know, political voting is fundamentally different than market allocation. So as um, Professor of Economics of uh, out of Stanford University, a uh, big fan of Thomas Sowell said, the first lesson of economics is scarcity. There is never enough of anything to fully satisfy all those who want it. The first lesson of politics is to disregard the first lesson of economics. And as you can see, um, that's kind of where and how the intersection can kind of get muddy a lot of times. So you know, talking about the political process, and I know this can kind of get annoying and kind of uh, stupid, but you know to fully understand you know how that intersects, I think it's really important to focus on the how the political process is a um, big influence around this. So the political process is merely an alternative form of social organization, like I said earlier. There are four major differences between the political and market process. You know, majority rule provides the basis for government action, while market activity is based on mutual agreement and voluntary exchange between individual and individual or business to business. Um, there's little incentive for voters to search for and acquire information about either issue or candidates because their choices will not be decisive. You know, economists refer to this as the rational ignorance effect. Thus, individuals will be better informed when making market choices than political choices. Um, you know, continue there. Three, you know, the political process imposes the same option on everyone. Well, markets allows for diverse representation. Um, four, the political process does not have anything like profit and loss that can be counted on to direct resources toward productive and away. Uh, from counterproductive activities so you know the modern political process can be viewed as a series of exchanges between coalitions and politicians concentrated interest groups provide support you know votes financial contributions you know high-paying jobs a revolving door we'll talk about that in a little bit later in exchange for spending and regulatory favors in turn politicians seek to arrange these exchanges in order to get elected so this is a really important you know thing to mention about the political process and how And why a lot of these, you know, quote unquote, corporations out there are doing well or not really well, they're getting a lot of favors. And like I said, you know, just right there, you know, these these politicians, you know, the coalitions, the concentrated interest groups, they provide the support and the votes, the financial contributions, the jobs they give them, you know, in exchange for spending favors, like giving them grants and stuff like that and regulatory favors. Hey, we we won't be as hard as you on you as we are for other people in terms of the regulatory effects. You know, but this in turn, you know, the politicians seek arrange these, you know, favors in order to get elected. So this is kind of how the system is. You know, so we talk about market failure, we also have to talk about government failure. You know, market failure as explained, you know, and I said earlier, there are cases where markets will fail to allocate resources efficiently. You know, government failure, a situation is completely different though. It's a situation in which the structure of incentives is such that the political process, including democratic political decision making, will encourage individuals to undertake actions that conflict with the economic efficiency. So we now have to look at and turn to the consideration of analysis of incentives and government failures, too. So, you know, understand, you know unless... Restrained by constitutional rules, special interest groups will use a democratic political process to obtain government favors at the expense of others. So, there's a special interest issue here. You know, an issue that generates substantial individual benefits to a small organized minority while improving or imposing a small individual cost on many other voters. So, interest groups may, uh, members may feel strongly about issues that. Might give them personal benefit or might help them out, and you know these such issues will, do, will dominate their political choices. In contrast, voters bearing the cost of such legislation often are uninformed on issues because it exerts only a small impact of their personal welfare because of the rational or, uh, because of that uh, the rational ignorance effect. So you know the bias of the political process, uh, you know the special interest effect. You know we talked about the special interest issue and the special interest effect is, you know, the bias little of the political process, it, you know, it is the bias of the political process that encourages politicians to support the views of special interests. So politicians have a strong incentive to support, you know, and 2020 is coming soon, guys. So it's really important to realize about, you know, politicians and, and political process in general. So you got to hear this out. You know, politicians have a strong incentive to support special interest in exchange for campaign contributions and other forms of political support. This is true even in actions – the action is counterproductive. You know, interest group members will decide whom to, prime, uh, to primary on the basis of poli- pol- the political stand on the special interest issue. As a regional you – know, irrational ignorance effect illustrates, the bulk of voters will generally be uninformed and disinterested. You know, Log rolling and pork barrel legislation strengthen the special interest effect. So there's been many cases where, you know, money coming into Congress and to other people is just totally uh, given one group, you know, like uh, tobacco companies, a incentive on something that would, you know, completely screw a bunch of other people over. Um, many, many cases where that's happened, especially when it comes to um, the, the uh, national conversation on legalizing marijuana uh, or decriminalizing it for that matter. Um, so the special interest effect. So here's kind of an example, right? Um, you know, the sugar program provides an example of a special interest effect. So the federal price supports and import quotas cause the price of sugar in the U.S. to be 50 to 100 percent above the world level. Approximately 20,000 sugar growers derive huge personal gains at the expense of millions of sugar consumers. The sugar lobby contributes more than 16 million to the legislators and candidates during the most recent election cycle. And this is a couple of years ago, so uh, so off this data, it's probably more now. It's probably closer to thirty. <laughs> so the program continues, even though the Americans are worse off because their resources are wasted producing a good that are ill suited to produce. Like you see, because of this, you know the f- special interest effect. Because you know the sugar program exists and the federal, you know the federal price supports and import quotas cause the price of sugar to be fifty to one hundred percent above the world average. Now I'm not saying. It's like, you know, super duper expensive, but that's expensive. You're raising the cost of living to give a few farmers here and there support and money. And then the sugar lobby contributes X amount of millions of dollars to the politicians and legislators. And this is how it works. It's ridiculous in my opinion. Um, special interest effect and in innovation and competition. You know, special interest effect tends to stifle innovation and competition process. You know, politicians will tend to favor established businesses with a stronger record of political contributions and better knowledge of lobbying techniques than newer innovation upstart firms. So the experience of Uber and Tesla provide examples, but let's go back to even a further example, Microsoft. Now, I know a little bit about their, um, anti trust lawsuit. You know, they got, I think it was I think it was Netscape if I'm not mistaken. They sued they got, they got they sued Microsoft in a sense because they claimed Microsoft was illegally dumping because they included a Windows Explorer or Microsoft Explorer, the uh, or what is that? Uh, Internet Explorer, yeah. There we go. I can't even think. Microsoft Internet Explorer included with uh, the OS. And they said there you're illegally dumping and then you know the government came in. And if you guys ever have a chance to watch it, watch Bill Gates' deposition. It's actually really funny and they're asking, you know, these really qu- these questions that they have no idea what computers are <laughs> or even are and what an OS even is and then they just tend to decide to break up the company in a lot of ways. So, yeah, things like this tend to happen and they tend to favor the companies that are already entrenched and have a political force. And at that time, Microsoft didn't have any force in Washington. Now Microsoft has a giant, beautiful office in Washington right next to Capitol Hill. <laughs> so they know what's up. They know what's going on. They don't want that to happen again. Unfortunately, that's the way of doing business when you have the government so heavily involved with the, with the economic process. So like I said, unless – you know, almost restrained by constitutional rules, legislators will run budget deficits and spend excessively. Um, you know, the fact, you know it's, it's really important to understand that and realize that. You know, budget deficits and national debt. You know, when government spending exceeds revenues, a deficit will occur, right? And when the government runs a deficit, it is financed by borrowing, issuing of treasury bonds, printing money. You know, when the borrowing, you know, increases the national debt, Total outstanding bonds on which the government must pay interest you know it, it totally it, <laughs> I mean the borrowing definitely increases the national debt right um, which is the total you know outstanding bonds on which the government must pay interest but in in contrast, a budget surplus which is you know excessive revenue relating to spending would reduce the government's outstanding debt in total, so this is when we get into a little bit discussion of John Maynard Keynes, who is um a very interesting economist, somebody that I have studied in school many, many times and somebody like who whose economic theories, I think, are some of the reason why we're in such a horrible position that we are in right now. So, the, you know, prior to 1960, it was widely believed that the federal government should balance its budget, except during war. This was pretty much the case, right? So Keynesians argued that the budget deficits should be run – um, when the economy was weak the keynesian view released politicians from a balanced budget constraint during 1960 2015 the federal government has run 52 de- uh, deficits and four surpluses so you can see what the effect of uh, some economic policy and economic theory uh, in my opinion incorrect economic theory has caused us as a nation you know the federal government has run a budget deficit most every year since 1960 like i said given the political uh, incentive structure, it's surprising. <laughs> is it surprising to you? I don't think so. I don't think it should be. If you've been paying attention. Um, this is government failure. You know, there's a short-sightedness effect, you know, which is the issues that yield current highly visible benefits at the expense of future costs that are difficult to identify, right? The political process is based towards the adoption of such proposals, even when they're inefficient. You know, the short-sightedness effect explains why politicians will find debt uh, debt financing and unfunded promises attractive. They make it possible for politicians to provide current benefits to voters without, you know, levying any equivalent amount of taxes to pay for them. You know, Green New Deal, all these other things. Medicare for all, a lot of these different ideas, you know, people say they want to do these things and, you know, maybe they might be right. I don't think so, but maybe they might be right. Maybe this is will help. I definitely disagree with that, but where are they going to get the money to pay from it? <laughs> and we can talk about that a little later. Um, so we talk about spending watchdogs. Each member of Congress has a strong incentive to fight hard for expenditures uh, beneficial to his or her constituents, but there is little or no incentive for a legislator to be spending, you know, to be a spending watchdog in a sense, right? um consider the incentives to overspend and if every member of congress decides to go to dinner one night and split the bill one of, uh one out of uh one over 535th what incentives to each uh what incentive to spend efficiently if each member of congress has to pay for each item ordered how is it altered when each pays 1 555th uh, 55th of the bill and change so the short night effect on funded promises um, the short-sightedness effect also provides a strong incentive for politicians to support unfunded, like I said, unfunded promises, programs promising benefits that are greater than revenues, you know, generated by the tax rates levied for the support. Like I said, the federal government has, you know, promised uh, senior citizens future payments on the Social Security and Medicare programs that are far greater than the payroll tax revenues that you know provide their financing. That's why I said earlier, unfunded liabilities is 120 trillion dollars in debt. The debt, you know, implied by the, you know, unfunded Social Security and Medicare liabilities, like I said, is four times almost or more than the national debt currently right now. Like people are not paying attention to this. They're just, you know, oh, the, debt, the debt is important, but the unfunded, unfunded liabilities is what's going to really cause the nation to shake to its knees. And this is what people have to realize about economic efficiency and the issues that the government have made over the last, you know, 60, 70 years that have caused a lot of these problems. You know, so what will happen if the federal government does not bring its finances under control? Like, what what happens? So, there will be repercussions in credit markets. You know, so higher interest rates uh, on borrowing and lending. Uh, t- uh, others will be less willing to lend to the U.S. federal government in general. So that would be horrible. The excessive debt could fuel another financial crisis in the future. Consider what happened in Greece recently. You know, where the the whole economy was just shaking to its knees, and austerity measures were put in. And there's rioting and all this horrible stuff happening. There'll be higher personal and business taxes in the future, much, much higher. The debt could lead to an additional money creation and inflation in the future, where the money supply basic, but the dollar basically becomes worthless. And you know, bread cost you know f- three, four bucks now it costs fifty. This happens in places. Look at Venezuela. To get coffee, it's like some ridiculous amount, like a million bolivars, whatever. It's horrible. You know, so control of the federal spend uh, of spending and bar- you know borrowing, you know, how can you know federal spending and borrowing be controlled? This is a really important issue that we need to take into effect, especially if you you know if you have kids and you want their lives to be you know um, not involved in this hor- horrific uh, you know event where you know things will get worse. So it's really important to take this into effect and understand that. So. It's unlikely that you know this will happen without any change to the political rules. So here are some of the ideas that you know we've thought about and kind of ruminated over and think that might be good. So we need I think there needs to be an amendment to the Constitution to require the federal government to balance its budget annually. Um it should require two thirds or three fourths approval by both the House and Congress, both the House of Congress both excuse me, both houses of Congress for spending proposals and increase its federal government borrowing power. Um and also it should limit this year's spending to last year's level of revenues. So something we need to um, quickly mention and, you know, quickly talk about is the debt, the national debt. People, like I said, don't think it's um, a serious issue. and, People like to say, oh, we need that. You know, this is like what Keynesianism has done to people. We need that. We need that. It's like I don't think that's a good thing to necessarily go by because if you – think about yourself. Do you need that as an individual? Probably not. Do you need that as a country, as a society? Probably not. You know, it's it's really sad. Um, And something really important, like I said – when it comes to our our debt and all those things is is we have to put it into perspective. We have to put it into perspective. And right now I'm just looking at the U uh the US Please go there and uh, it might give you a minor heart attack seeing how bad the situation is. But you know, the total US uh debt is, is horrific. And the total debt per citizen, right, is two hundred and twenty thousand dollars one hundred and thirty. Two hundred twenty thousand one hundred thirty dollars, and total debt per family is eight hundred fifty eight thousand eight hundred ninety four. You know that's if you uh, an interest paid per citizen is over ni- over almost ten thousand. So as you can see, this is getting ridiculous. This is getting horrible, and we need to really put a handle on the spending of our government. To kind of reduce this stuff because, you know, the debt per citizen is really scary. You know, uh, the, if the economy tends to not do well in the future or collapse, these things need to be taken into effect and understood. So when government becomes heavily involved in providing favors to some at the expense of others, inefficiency results and in improper unethical relationship develop between government and offic- government officials and businesses. So the tool of politics, which frequently becomes its objective, is to extract resources from the general taxpayer with a minimum off of offense and distribute the proceeds among innumerable claim, uh, claimants in such a way to maximize support of the polls. And this is said by former Secretary of Defense, uh, James Leshender. I think that's uh, how you pronounce his name. Um, but again, in a lot of ways, I, I would say that's a lot of what's going on here. So – there's two ways to acquire wealth. We talked about wealth creation in the past. We talked about prosperity and stuff like this. But let's go over this again. There's two ways to acquire wealth in the world. There's production. People can get ahead by producing goods or services of value and exchanging them for income. This method of acquiring income helps in the exchange you know, partners and it enhances the wealth of society generally. Because then you know they can invest in their, in their community, in their city, in their, their town, in their country. So that's one way of acquiring wealth in the world, by production. The other way is by plundering. Sometimes people get ahead by what is known as plundering, taking what others have produced. Plunder not only, you know, fails to generate additional income, but also consumes resources and thereby reduces the wealth of society in general. This is something to really take into effect and, you know, understand. Um. Governments promote prosperity when they encourage production and discourage plundering. But that's not how it is going right now. So there's a huge problem with political favoritism. And, you know, right now I want to talk about the impact of political favoritism on the economy. So subsidies and government favoritism endanger both political democracy and economic efficiency. So subsidies generally distort prices. And encourage businesses to seek government favors rather than producing better products at a lower cost. Subsidies to some firms' sectors place other firms at a disadvantage. You know, and subsidies and favoritism will create an improper and ethical relationship between business and political officials. Businesses will seek government favors in order to enhance profit. Economists call this rent-seeking. So, government. you know, when we talk about government failure, we need to talk about rent-seeking. You know, rent seeking is actions by individuals and interest groups designed to restructure public policy in a manner that will either directly or indirectly transfer income to themselves. So, widespread use of the taxing, spending, and regulatory powers of government that favor some at the expense of others will encourage rent seeking. Rent seeking diverts resources away from productive activities. You know, the output of economies with substantial amounts of rent seeking will fall below their potential way way below their potential. So, you know, we talk about political favoritism, we need to talk about cronyism. And you know, it's, you know, or people like to call it crony capitalism and it's its role in with government failure and its, its connectivity to government failure. So, as government spending, subsidies, income transfers, regulatory favors grow, businesses and others well organized, you know, other well organized groups will, you know, expend more resources seeking to obtain government favors. You know, as a result, crony capitalism grows, Relative to a market allocation, so we talk about you know crony capitalism. You know is the situation where the allocation of resources is determined by political favors rather than by consumer preferences translated through the market profit and law state uh, system. So we talk about in the economy we have you know crony capitalists, and then we have market entrepreneurs. So a market entrepreneur get ahead the way they get ahead in a society is by providing customers, consumers, with products that are uh, more highly valued than the resources required for their production. Again, market entrepreneurs get ahead by providing consumers with products that are more highly valued than the resources required for their production. Crony capitalists get ahead, on the other hand, by providing political players with campaign contributions and other political resources in exchange for government contracts, subsidies, tax benefits, and other forms of political favoritism. You know, this show goes on in uh, in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan. I'm recording this in the suburb of Detroit, Michigan. In Detroit, we had a huge problem with that, with, you know, uh, political favoritism and, you know, uh, people giving contrib- campaign contributions, in some cases legal campaign contributions, contributions and getting government contracts, you know, different subsidies, tax benefits, all the things, all the sort. So... In my opinion, in my estimation, crony capitalism reflects a government failure and endangers the legitimacy of the legit, you know, like I said, it endangers the legitimacy of the democratic political process and it also endangers the legitimacy of the economic process. So the net gain of transfer recipients is less and often substantially less than the amount of the transfer. So To non-economists, income transfers look like an effective way to help targeted beneficiaries. However, economic analysis indicates that it is actually quite difficult to transfer income to a group of recipients in a way that will improve their long-term well-being. So the unintended secondary effects, the unintended consequences explain why this proposition is true. So the secondary uh, effects of transfers. So three reasons why transfers and subsidies are largely ineffective in general. So they, like I said, they reduce the incentive of both taxpayer donors and transfer recipients to earn. Um, competition for transfer erodes more of the long-term gain of the intended beneficiaries. So criterion, you know, uh, owe something, um, do something or be something. For uh, you know, a receipt of transfer, that must be established in competition to meet. Criterion will erode net benefits. Um, transfer programs reduce... The adverse consequences suffered by those who make imprudent decisions, and you know this reduces their motivation. Take steps to avoid the you know this adversity or the adversity in general, right? Um, you know, thinking about the secondary uh, effects. Of transfers, you know, when beneficiaries have to do something, for example, wait in line, fill out a form, lobby government officials, take an exam, endure delays, or contribute to a selected political campaigns in order to qualify for a transfer, much of their potential gain will be eroded. When beneficiaries have to own, you know, something in order to get a subsidy, people will bid up the price of the asset needed to acquire the subsidy so that, you know, the price of everything will get more expensive. The agriculture subsidy program, taxi licensing that results in higher prices, and the Homestead Act provides examples of how secondary effects erode the net gain of transfer recipients. So even though the per capita income has more than doubled since the late 1960s, the poverty rate has virtually stayed the same as when the war on poverty began. And a big reason for this, like I mentioned earlier, is the devaluating of our currency. So in the 1960s, we had a currency was much better position than it is right now. The purchasing power was much better than it is right now. So things, so essentially, if we kept the currency of, of, the, of that era and didn't erode it as much as we have over time, as much as the government has eroded over time, then we would be able, things would be much cheaper in general. Bread would not be three, four dollars. Bread would be, you know, 50 cents and stuff like that. And that's, that would be, that would be because the currency is at a healthier rate. So, second, you know, the secondary effects of you know anti-poverty transfers, you know, in a, in a sense, why weren't these anti-poverty, the war on the war on poverty transfer programs more effective? And you know, the transfers generate three unintended secondary effects that slow progress against poverty. So, the income-linked transfers reduce the incentives of low-income individuals to earn, move up the income ladder, and escape poverty. So, high impact marginal tax rates, if they earn more uh the, their transfer benefits are reduced and then the combination of their additional taxes owed and transfer loss means that they get to keep only ten to twenty percent or maybe even thirty percent of the additional earnings. So this incent the way the way the incentives are designed really hurt the uh, the poorest people in our country. And it, it, it keeps them in a you know in a cycle where they can't get out of this type of life. Um, primarily because like I said, the incentives around the tax structure and the incentive structure, uh, when it comes to the, to the benefits is, you know, pretty drastic when, when, when you start making more money and how quickly that's removed. And, you know, then on top of that, the, you know, the, the effects that you have to, you know, you have to pay the taxes and you have to get you, the money to be taken away from you right at that time. It's not effective. It's not working. So transfer programs that reduce the hardship of poverty also reduce the opportunity opportunity costs of risky choices such as you know dropping out of school or the workforce um you know child uh, unwanted uh, pregnancies uh you know abandonment of children by fathers drug use you know, all types of things um you know, government anti-poverty transfer you know transfers crowd out people uh, private charitable efforts in general so when the government does more to, you know, quote unquote, help the poor, you know, um, particularly families, churches, civic, you know, civic organizations, um, other types of organizations will do less and will not try as hard. I mean, even though Americans, as a whole country, give almost five hundred billion a year to charities, um, we could do a little better, particularly at home. Um, so reducing the likelihood of poverty and there's uh, three things. You know, people out there can uh, can do to reduce the future of poverty, and this is not coming from any. This is actually coming from the Brookings Institute, which is a um, liberal think tank, and they have uh, this was in one of their in their um, studies, and they found out that you know three things young people can do that will reduce likelihood of future poverty, and the three things are complete high school at a minimum, on entering the workforce, continue working, and seek a full time job. And the third thing is getting married before having a child. And this is what the Brookings Institute has said would be the most likely thing to reduce poverty, future poverty that is. So the people who choose these you know, three options are unlikely to spend much time in poverty and uh, as like a study showed, way less time. Um, so right now we've got to take into effect the economy is you – know, far too complex to be centrally planned and efforts to do so will result in affection in effect in inefficiency and cronyism so as adam smith said in the theory of, uh, theory of moral sentiments uh, the man of system is apt uh, to be uh, very wise to his own conceit he seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces on a chessboard and this is a really important quote because this quote Symbolizes the difference between you know people who think they can centrally plan an economy. And what is an economy? People talk about economics like it's like some type of you know faraway thing that has nothing to do with anything. No, economics actually are just individuals in, a, in an environment working together, in a company, or individuals you know and their and their family members you know working. That's what an economy is. It's just different people in the country and the corporations that they either work for and or consume from. And of course, the public goods we talked about earlier. Excuse me. So something you know, this is a really important point. So talk about central planning replaces markets with government. It can involve and this is really important for people that are, you know, um, on the on the political spectrum or the economic spectrum of either so, being a socialist or agreeing with socialism or uh, thinking that you know, government complete government takeover of the economy is a good idea. Hear me out and see what you think. Like I said, central planning replaces markets with government. It can involve direct you know command and control under the old Soviet system, but it also you know c- can occur when elected pol- uh, political officials substitute their uh, their verdicts for those uh, for those of consumers, you know, investors, entrepreneurs directed by market forces. Um, economics however indicate that central planning will be inefficient there are five major reasons why this will be the case Um, the central planning merely substitutes politics for market decisions you know so subsidies investment funds distributed by governmental planners and uh, influenced by political uh, rather than economic considerations old firms tend to be favored other than new firms uh, the new – usually the new firms are growth-oriented firms. Um, like I said, pork barrel projects will be pursued. Um, another thing to take into effect, uh, another reason why central planning and why it will fail um, according to economics is the, the incentive of government-operated firms to keep costs low, be innovative and efficiently supply good, goods is weak. You know, managers of government firms gain little from improved efficiency and lower costs. Very little. There's nothing there to be worried about. It's like, okay, well, it's not like I have a st- you know, I'm not a stakeholder necessarily or as much of a stakeholder as I would be if this was a market, you know, driven thing. Central planners, you know, three, you know, central planners spend you know, spending the money of taxpayers will invest less wisely than investors risking their own money. So private investors bear the consequences of poor investments directly. In contrast, to successes of failures of government projects seldom affects the personal wealth of government planners and government employees and, and the politicians in general. Um, and four, the efficiency of government spending will also be undermined because the budget of an unconstrained government is something like a common pool resource. So when money and resources are owned in common, there is little motivation to consider the future. This common resource, you know, uh, characteristic explains why when the interest group are pursuing government spending, they have little incentive to consider either the future or the adverse impact of their actions. In their view, you know, uh, if they do not grab more of the government budget, some other interest group will. And five, uh, there's no way that central planners can acquire enough information to create, maintain and consistently update the plan that makes sense. Markets channel information to both Producers and consumers via the price system, market profits and loss disciplines individuals and uh, holds them accountable for, cons, con, you know, constantly retreat, um, retrieving and maintaining and updating uh, present and future plans based on efficiency, not political considerations. The political process does not have anything like this. Nothing has nothing like the profit and loss. That will be you know persistently channel resources into productive projects, not unproductive projects, like the bridge to nowhere and all these other horrible ideas. Um, and you know another thing to mention is you know competition is just as as important in government as it is in markets, and people don't like to talk about that. So we need to talk about decentralization, you know, and how how important it is to an individual. So decentralization allows people to move toward governmental units that provide desired public services at a low cost. In turn, the movements of voters will discipline governments and, and help keep them in line with you know preferences of citizens. So competition is just uh, you know disciplinary force in the market sector. It weeds out inefficient and If inefficiency and provides a strong incentive for firms to serve consumers, competition among decentralized government units can also improve the government – also improve the performance of government. You know, uh, efficiency will be improved when private firms are given the opportunity to compete with the government enterprises. Vehicle maintenance, printing shops, postal services, garbage collection, street uh, maintenance, school provide examples where this is feasible and how this has been used many, many times in today's current society. Um, competition among decentralized government units will be, you know, pr- will, will provide each with an incentive to operate more efficiently. If a government levies high taxes without providing a parallel equivalent, you know, quality of service and regulates excessively, some individuals and businesses that make up their tax base will choose th- uh, the exit option. With decentralization, citizens will be able to group together with others desiring similar combinations of government services and taxes and the grouping will make it possible for you know for more people to obtain services consistent with their preferences. Um, you know, if competition is going to serve the interests of citizens, it must not be stifled by the federal government. Uh, when the national government subsidizes, mandates, regulates the bundle of services provided by state and local government, it undermines the com- you know the competitive process among them. You know, competition among governments will not evolve you know, within the government will not evolve automatically. It will have to be incorporated, you know, into the political structure itself. Um, so as Milton Friedman said, who was a Nobel laureate in 1976, um, there's uh, an enormous inertia, a tyranny of the status quo in the private and especially government arrangements. Only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When the crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function, to develop alternatives to existing policies to keep them alive and available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. So we talk about you know, constitutional design for prosperity. and What would a constitution designed to promote economic freedom and prosperity look like? So the government is going to be a positive force for economic prosperity for all The rule of the political game must bring the self-interest of voters, politicians, and bureaucrats into harmony with economic progress. So limited government, equal treatment under the law, protection of property rights, and federalism are the cornerstones of a sound constitution. When a government supports private ownership, freedom of exchange, competitive markets, the rule of law, monetary stability, it will provide the environment for economic growth and prosperity. Look at places in the world; they don't have those types of things. Aren't as lucky to have a government as stable as ours, even though it's <laughs> very—it seems very unstable uh, today. But uh, those countries are are in very, very dire circumstances. So, what would you know? Promoting um, government action based on agreement rather than coercion is important. People will agree to an action only when each party gains. Thus, actions based on agreement, whether undertaken through market or government, will be mutually advantageous and will therefore promote the general welfare rather than the interests of some parties at the expense of others. The challenge before us is to restore, you know, the intent of the constitutional rules and develop few new ones that will promote government actions based on agreement and bring the political process back into harmony with economic progress. So – a really important thing to kind of you know finish today's uh probably end today's show on is kind of talking a little bit about why this is all so important and why why is this something that we need or you you know dear listener out there needs to kind of take into effect and realize it's important to realize a few things because with a few of these misconceptions you could just end up not really um not really even being able to um realize what and how the government is actually affecting the economy and what's really going on so when we talk about cronyism when i mention cronyism when i mention the cronyists people don't people seem to misunderstand when you hear the federal government or a state government giving some company a subsidy or you know a giant incentive to come to their state or whatever this is the this is the quintessential problem and the in the idea that you know that the corporations alone are here are, are to blame. And you know, the, this is like a, every sci-fi movie where the corporation is running everything. It's a little bit more nuanced than that, a little bit more complicated than that because it's both the corporation and the government that, you know, in tandem are benefiting each other. And this is when I, I mentioned the revolving door. What do I mean by that? So you have legislators, you have regulators who are in either the FDA or some other organization, and they will do favors for a corporation excuse me, do favors for a corporation based on the fact that after they leave the regulatory board, they can, (coughs) excuse me, after they leave the regulatory board, they can go and join the company, become a lobbyist, become some type of employee in some way and get paid the big bucks based on, you know, the little deal he did when he was, you know, working in the government. Then after he's done there, he can go into Congress and, you know, it keeps going back and forth. This is the revolving door of government. So this needs to be stopped, right? This problem is there. You know, another thing that you know, people like to talk about, I've mentioned, that might, you know, uh, fix this problem is removing the power because government government is force. That's what government is at the end of the day. Um, but government also, you know, dishes out power to the, favor- to the people they favoritize, people they love, people they think that would, you know, benefit them. And when I say government, I mean individuals within the government making these decisions. I don't mean government as some – You know, oh, the government is some big, you know, uh, you know, you know, unit, singular unit thing. That's not realistic and kind of stupid. Um, but you know, to realize the effect of all this, you know, uh, taking the power, not be, not for the government, not to be able to have this power to give special, you know, favoritism towards people, removing the power from the government, limiting the government is the only way I see how we can, you know, limit. The influence on corporations and especially the influence on us and the influence on the political process, because the problem is, is, you know, the worst thing a corporation can do to you in a complete free market that protects property rights and uh, all this stuff is try to sell you a product at the end of the day. That's it. But the moment they start getting in bed with the government and they can, you know, choose Where a mom and pop store can, how close can they be to Walmart? Or they can tell, you know, zoning zoning laws there, or they can tell another corporation, well, you know, we're going to have to have you go through these, you know, barriers that you can't afford, but the company that already is, you know, giving us a ton of contributions can afford because of their lawyers and because of all this stuff. They're putting barriers to entry. This stuff has to stop. And, you know, the only way we're going to make an economy, quote unquote, an economy that works for everybody. As a lot of people like to, in politics, like to say, is primarily by removing the power that government has on the economic sector. You know, there's a, there's in, in religion, right? There is in the government, right? They say uh, separation of church and state. And I think there should be a big separation between uh, economics and state for the same reasons as the separation of church and state because the people in church end up wanting to influence government and run government so they can get the favorite so they can get the favoritism this has happened in every chance look look at look at the history of the catholic church and just don't tell me that they didn't try to grab power wherever they were or then after that we you know in germany when you know and uh, after martin luther nailed his 95 theses for 400 years you know Protestants and Christians were fighting with each other, trying to gain power of the government. And then, that point, after like you know a big portion of their population was dead, they realized like, oh, maybe we should do this whole you know separation in church and state thing, so we don't have to fight anymore. And they're like, yeah, good idea. That's how that that's how that came to be, because of hundreds of years of warfare and killing each other. Because the special interest group, i.e., the churches at the time, wanted to get power of the government and use the government to help themselves out. And what you're seeing is the exact same thing in economics, special interest groups, corporations, big ones that have huge, you know, uh, financing and all this stuff. Some of them are good. Some of them are pretty bad. Some of them have great business models. Some of them horrible business models. Some of them are just complete cronies. Some of them are are, are entrepreneurs and are trying to make things better. But then again, if you are, if you are winning because you are getting a favor, you are not winning because you're good. And this is a problem with so many corporations in our environment and so many companies. And this is you know when people hear me talk about capitalism or hear me talk about free markets. They think that I'm in support of all these you know crappy corporations out there that are doing horrific things and are taking advantage of people and taking advantage of property and taking advantage of all this stuff. If a corporation wants to build somewhere, right, what do they do? a big corporation, they go and get the government and they, you know, and then the government, you know, civil asset forfeiture takes your land. And then what happens? They give it, they sell it to the to the company. This happens over and over and over again. And thank God the Supreme Court, you know, did some stuff on civil asset forfeiture not too long ago. But regardless of that, it's important to realize and understand that the only way forward in my estimation to making an economy that works for everybody is by getting rid of the power that they can give out to these corporations, If the politicians continue to give out these favorite, you know, favoritism and continue to give out these, you know, perks and these, you know, these tax incentives and, you know, these tax breaks and all this stuff. Yeah, maybe we'd have a much better, much more um, relaxed environment. Right. Maybe, maybe, maybe things would be much fairer. Maybe this would be better. But another thing, that's one side of the coin. Another problem is the government needs to stop messing with the currency. Go ahead and look at a inflation calculator. Go to 1972, that's when they got rid of the gold standard. Go there, look at it, type in 100 bucks, see how much is it today in today's money. And then tell me if that's not significant enough for you. If that's going to change something in your life if money was back to its back to its, you know, way before things started getting bad. Even take it to 1960 and see how it was. Things are different. Things have changed. Inflation is actually a big problem. And what people don't realize is not only you know in the economic situation is you know, it can be bad and all this stuff, but once the hyperinflation starts, once we have that issue and the debt and then the debt crisis comes along with it, it's going to be very hard for the economy to get back to, back up and start up. It's going to have to start from from scratch in a sense. And you know nobody wants that. People want things to get better incrementally. Not just a huge shutdown and boom, we're back up. and that's not how it's gonna happen. So again, thank you again for listening, hearing me talk about today's uh, topic. And please, please, please uh, be patient with the, with the website that be coming back up. and uh, please remember to continue to fight for your happiness. Thank you. Have a good day. Yeah.